0: Learning spaces that are effective for all students require careful planning and design. In this episode, we discuss ways to promote inclusion in the way we structure our courses, activities, and feedback. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning.
1: This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist,
0: and Rebecca Mushter, the graphic designer.
1: Together we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego.
0: Our guests today are Viji Safi and Kelly Hogan. Bidji is a teaching professor of psychology and neuroscience at UNC Chapel Hill, and Kelly is an associate dean of instructional innovation, quality enhancement plan director, and teaching professor of biology also at UNC Chapel Hill.
2: Welcome. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Today's teas are? I'm drinking LaCroix. Seltzer.
3: Yes, me too. I've got my sparkling water right next to me.
1: That's my second favorite thing to drink over tea.
3: (laughs) (laughs) In our writing last summer, we would get together when we could get together. We would get together and write, and we often had a nice, cold, sparkling can of LaCroix with us. And one time we tweeted about it, and LaCroix contacted me and sent me some water. So nice! (laughs) it's it's become our official working drink.
0: (laughs) Somehow tea has for us as well. I have blueberry green tea today.
1: I have special English breakfast tea. What makes it special? The package. <laughs> <laughs> <And> the label.
0: <laughs> okay. And where did that come from?
1: It's a Harney and Sons tea.
0: You've both been working together for quite a while now on inclusive teaching practices and have done a really good job in providing lots of workshops and lots of materials for people who would like to improve their teaching practices. What prompted your interest in this area? And how did you start working together on this?
2: For me, I think I started getting really interested in what it means to be a good teacher based on data. So I had seen some data in my own course, and I saw some pretty large discrepancies based on race and ethnicity. And I thought a lot about what it means to be effective. And it really got me thinking about, are there ways that I could narrow and reduce those achievement gaps in my own class? And not long after that, I was in a faculty learning community for teaching large classes, And that's where I met Vigi. So we were both in this faculty learning community together, paired up in a group, and we quickly recognized ourselves in each other. So just our style of teaching, our personalities are on the more introverted side. We recognized that we really enjoyed learning how students learned, but weren't always going to be the most charismatic and funny people. And we felt really strongly that funny didn't equate to good teaching. And so we really built a friendship and collegiality around really learning with each other what good teaching looks like.
3: Yeah. And I'll add that we had the opportunity in that faculty learning community to watch each other teach. And up to that point, the only time I had been observed was really for what I deem sort of high stakes purposes, like for renewal of my contract or something like that. So this is the first time we got invited to just sit in a classroom for no other reason than to just see how another instructor operates in that classroom. And it was a very eye-opening experience because not only was it a chance to do this without sort of a weight around it, but also that it was in a topic that I didn't know anything about. So it became a really fun activity to sit in the classroom and just be a student and see it from a student's perspective. And especially not knowing the content specifically, it was not about critiquing the content or the delivery of the content. It was really just the mechanics of teaching and what that looks like. And That was a really helpful thing for me to see and experience being a student in Kelly's classroom.
0: Is that something that was done for just people within the learning community or more broadly throughout the institution?
2: Those observations were part of the faculty learning community. We have since tried to build programming around that same idea campus-wide. And so we have a peer visits program that we help the Center for Faculty Excellence run. And faculty can go into other people's classes they can see a menu of people that are available that they can go visit, with some rubrics available. So I think it spun out of that as something really transformational for us that were involved early on.
0: We were just planning to introduce one of those beginning in late March of this year. And then it kind of fell apart because people were no longer interested in doing that when they were panicking in terms of the transition to remote teaching. But We're going to be meeting next week to talk about how we might be doing that here. So it's something that I've been encouraging. I've been trying to get some motion on for a while now, and it looks like we're moving in that direction. And it sounds like it was a really productive experience for both of you Mm -hmm. and for the rest of us, given your collaborations since then. Many people have been concerned about the growth in income inequality, and economists have done a lot of work showing that one of the main reasons for that is the growth in the rate of return to education over the last few decades. What we're seeing are some very unequal outcomes, as you mentioned, in terms of success in courses, persistence, and so forth, by race and in the STEM fields also by gender. So it's really nice to see people working in this area because it's an area where I think we need a lot of help. To what extent are these differences that we're seeing the result of systemic racism and sexism?
3: There's a lot of that question. Well, racism, sexism, any form of discrimination, in essence, these are learned behaviors. And these are things that we grow up with without really even thinking about sometimes. And the classroom is no different from being in life. And so we have to address them in the classroom in the same way we need to address them in life. And for me, when I think about it, it's really about sort of concrete things sometimes, like who is speaking up? in a certain space, like who feels comfortable speaking up, who feels comfortable speaking without really having much time to think about their answer, who gets to see instructors who look like them in the classroom, We already know that, especially for our students, it can be difficult sometimes for them to identify with their instructors, to feel like they're just a normal person. Sometimes we hear that, right? Like, you do the things we do? That seems so strange. I never would have thought a professor would do those things, right? So even identifying with a professor, like adding that layer of not seeing somebody who looks like you in the classroom just makes it feel even more unattainable, right? So there's a lot in thinking about a lot of aspects of teaching that are barriers for our students. And I often when I go to a professional conference, when I was able to go to professional conferences, I looked out into the room and what I see in my professional meetings doesn't look like what I see in my classroom, in terms of the diversity of participation. And I asked myself why that difference exists. And my course is the first course that leads people on a path in what's called quantitative psychology. So if I want them to have more people, more interested people in the field, they have to succeed in my class to then have the interest and the goal to keep going on that track. So it starts with my class, but it actually starts way before my class and all the messages they get before they even show up at my doorstep in my course and how I can work to counteract some of the messages that tells them they don't belong and that there isn't a place for them in STEM. These are things that they hear either subconsciously or consciously, and we need to address that
0: what can we do to create a more inclusive learning environment for our students that will work well for all of our students?
2: Well, I think we have to recognize that these historical differences, as you said, systemic racism and sexism, that those are things that existed before we met our students, and they lead to differences in who our students are. But we have to be careful not to blame our students for those differences. You know, diversity is a strength, and we have to find ways to Feel empowered to work with the students that we have to build on that strength that is the diversity, but also not, as I said, blame students. So the way we like to think about this is by adding structure to everything that we do. And we like to think about it as structure in the course design as well as the facilitation in live sessions. So a lot of times our students especially see teaching as just what we do sort of face to face or in this day and age, our live Zoom sessions if we're doing them. And who's not speaking up and who's not participating if we only use low structure? And by that, I mean like maybe one mode where we expect volunteers all the time. But we also have to think about course design and a low structure course design might be one that doesn't have a lot of practice and assessment built in where students actually learn how learning works. And so we want to think about building structure in everything we do and asking ourselves constantly with what I want to do, how can I add more structure? So it's not left up to chance who's going to know what to do with this, who's going to know how to take notes, who's going to know that there should be routine practice in learning, who's going to know that they could participate in different ways. So that's kind of the way in which we think about it, but I'm sure we could get into more specifics with each of our courses.
0: And you've both done some research that have shown that there are significant effects of providing that structure in terms of encouraging student success, as well as perhaps reducing that gap, I believe.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Work that I published with a colleague, Sarah Eddy, years ago, we looked at my teaching in a much lower, less inclusive structure where I did a lot of talking. You could call it a pretty typical teacher-centered classroom and then looked at 3 semesters of me shifting to something far more student centered a variety of ways of interacting with my students and basically a higher structure classroom and even in those first few semesters where you know you're just getting used to something and don't feel proficient yet it made a big difference it closed an achievement gap for first generation college students it narrowed the achievement gap for black students continued to see students talk about an increased feeling of community, among other things. So it continued to get better as I got better. And I continued to see ways I could put more structure into my course. And I kept asking myself, how can I add more structure?
0: Maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the ways in which you've added that structure in each of your classes.
2: Sure. I'll provide
3: some examples of that. When I redesigned my course, and like Kelly, I had planned it as a study to look at how at that time, it was about maybe 10 years ago, recording micro lectures and having students watch them before they came to class and using class time to do more polls and some of the assignments that they were struggling with. And that was the challenge I had in my introductory statistics course was I was using the class time to explain ideas and then sending them home to do hard homework problem sets. And oftentimes that led to a lot of frustration because there was no one around to help. Help with the questions that they had in real time. So I wanted to switch the order of that so that they were watching the videos where I'd explain how you might calculate something at home. And then in class, we might practice doing some of those problems together with peers, with graduate student TAs, with undergraduate learning assistants. So that's an example of a structure that's in place, right? Having the videos available so students can watch them before class and what I learned was that it became a really incredible resource for students to access throughout the semester. I anticipated that they would get used right before the class session, where we'd be using the material. And indeed, when I look at the learning management, the site provides some statistics around that. Yes, there were the most clicks right before class because I had a quiz in class that day on that material. But there were also clicks right before that first exam on some of those videos. There were also clicks before the final exam. There were clicks in random days in the semester when I didn't think it had anything to do with what we were talking about, but they went back to watch something. And what that taught me was that they needed to see that material more than one time. And when I was doing it in class, it was once, it was ethereal, right? It was once and it was gone. But now students could rewatch, they could hit pause, they could work as slowly or quickly through the problems as they wanted to. So it provided a resource for being able to do that. And again, that's the example of by providing it, not all the students need to watch it multiple times, but it's available to those who needed to do that or wanted to do that.
0: So they watched a video and then you had a quiz at the beginning of the class or was it before the class started?
3: The way I implemented it, and there's lots of different ways people have this piece how they would structure that requirement, but I wanted it to be done. And so I wanted students to have shown me that they've done it through a quiz at the start of class. It helped keep them accountable for doing the work. And I do a fairly good job of what we call, it's like the warm demander. I'm the warm demander in the classroom. And I do a pretty good job of coaching them and asking them to do this work so that we can do hard things together in class, making the argument that it's the most efficient way we can be together when we're together. And then there's peer pressure, right? Like if they're the only one, they look around and everybody else came to class prepared. We've all been in meetings where we didn't do our homework, whatever the homework was. So if you build this culture, I think people really do take to it and they do learn that it is efficient. And more importantly, like Kelly's class, they see results. They do better on an exam because they've kept up with it all along. So that's when you know the proof is in the pudding. When they see things that they're pleased with, then they keep going with it.
2: Yeah, and that's an important point Vigi just made, that these kinds of techniques help all students. They disproportionately benefit some students, which makes a difference in terms of equity, but they definitely help all students. My own experience with structure is one that Viji alluded to with the flip classroom, which is another way of thinking about the learning cycle, that students need to be required to do things before, during, and after class. And that adds a very high structure to what we would consider the learning cycle. So if I ask students to do some reading before class, I don't assume that all students know what to take away from a reading. And so for this, I give students guided reading questions. And it helps them know where I'm coming from and what they should focus focus on and what they might want to use as a study guide, and it helps replace the lecture so that I'm not going to talk to them the whole time that we're together. When we are together, I want to use the time for collaboration and a variety of things, and so I also don't assume that students know what to take away from that, and so I provide class outlines to make sure that whether a student has learning differences, is multilingual, distracted, whatever that all students leave with some basic outlines from class. So already you're starting to see how this structure can help all kinds of students. And then in class, I added a lot more active learning and it quickly became apparent to me that if I don't put the instructions in multiple modes, so verbal and visual, that students were not going to be with me and we were going to waste a lot of time with instructions. So. It's something I think we don't think about a lot. Like if we want them to do something, then we have to be very clear about that, whether it's in an assignment, a breakout group online, or active learning together in a classroom, providing more silence time for thinking. And then for me, a lot of it has come down more recently to group work and equity around group work. And I kept thinking to myself, how do I add more structure to the group work? Because students were telling me if I just said, turn and talk to a neighbor that certain students always were left out or they were with friends and they weren't being pushed to really do the learning and feel the rigor of what they were being asked to do because the friends would just sort of agree and then chit chat. And so I thought about structuring groups and assigning groups and giving people in the groups roles. So all of these are just different ways to think about how do I bring more structure to my classroom for all students. And it's not going to hurt the students that already know how to take notes. And it's not going to hurt students who know how to take notes on outlines and all of that. But for the ones that need that, it's going to really level the playing field for them.
3: Yeah. And I'd add to the idea that the technology can help us here. We have a lot of good platforms, not a single one that would do everything, but we have good platforms that help us accomplish these goals. And I'll give the classroom response system or polling the example that I use. I mean, that's something that I was using even before I redesigned the course. And the reason I loved it so much was because I could hear from every student in a classroom, right? I didn't have to wonder if it was just the brave one who raised their hand, who understood it and looked and scanned and tried to make sense of the confusion of the faces, right? There's no ambiguity. If I know that 97% of the people got the question right, then we can move on. That's a pretty good response. So thinking through what technology exists to help us help all students is really important in this work.
2: I'm currently really enjoying in our learning management system, there's something called lesson tools, and it's a way to build each lesson for students. And it's such an easy way to think about building something before, during, and after. And I feel like a lot of people are starting to realize that building an online class just requires so much more structure that as that translates back into the face-to-face classroom, that structure will be built. Yes, it takes a lot of time and effort to build it, but once it's there, you've got all these online homeworks and resources and videos. We're going to have a lot more ways to say to students, you can learn this this way or this way or this way. And that is the basis of universal design, something I think we should all strive to do. But we know it takes time and effort to get all those resources together.
1: These are a lot of things that are very dear to my heart, too. Really thinking about flexibility and making sure that we can engage students in a lot of different ways.
3: There are many things about this emergency transition, the change to remote instruction, that I think we're all learning that that flexibility and the structure is really important. And sometimes people think that they are at odds with one another, but they're really not. That we need to think about multiple ways to have assignments be late, for example, because things are happening in life. I think for far too long, we've ignored the differences that our students come to the classroom with. And now it's in our face when we see that a student doesn't have a good internet connection for example. So those differences are becoming very clear in this transition. And like Kelly, I'm optimistic that many of the things we're designing and learning will stick beyond this transition because we are building things that will last. Hopefully, they'll last in the courses. The notes you make, the videos you make, these are all things that can be helpful to students in the future as well.
0: That was something we emphasized with our workshops for helping people prepare for the fall back at the beginning of the summer, telling them that, yeah, this is going to be a lot more work preparing your courses than many of you have ever done before. But the people who already were teaching online really didn't have many problems because they had a lot of the things built. And if you do this, Even if this pandemic is gone in a year or so, everything you've created can still be used as long as you create them in ways that are modular and that can be adopted for continued use in the future. I think that helped convince a lot of people that it was a good time to start devoting to those activities because it wasn't just for a one or two semester emergency, but it was going to be a change that could actually improve their classes indefinitely. Mm-hmm. At least that's what we tried to convince people. There are a lot of really panicked and worried people.
3: It's an investment. It's a heavy investment in a short amount of time in a very panicked, way. And we're sympathetic to my colleagues who are doing this while also caregiving and that there's a lot, it's not just life as normal, that we're asking a lot of a lot of people in a short amount of time.
2: And I like your use of the word modular, because for me, that's really key. I build everything by lesson objective. So it might only take me 10 minutes to make a video so I can pop in and out of my life. I don't have to worry about creating this awesome video with no outtakes, right? It's just much quicker. And then students can also say, okay, I see I have six videos to watch today, but they're all five or 10 minutes. I'll do three now, I'll do three later. So I do think it fits nicely with the time we're in, but it also helps alignment across the course too for students to know exactly what they need to do and then use those modules as the basis for your assessment.
1: I agree, Kelly. I've been spending a lot of time making sure that the modules that I'm creating can actually act as standalone things and don't connect <laughs> between them so that I could mix and match them in the future because there's some things that in a virtual environment, I'm doing it in an order that I might do differently if we were in person. And so... I think that's ending up working really well. I'm having to articulate what I want to articulate really concretely about a particular subject and break it down into smaller pieces. And I think you're right that that structure is going to stick later on. I'm going to keep doing that in the future. And it's definitely causing me to think about things differently. We've talked a bit about the structure of classes and ways that we can be more equitable and inclusive. But what about the way that we evaluate student work and grade student work?
2: One thing that we often talk about in the workshops we do at a lot of institutions is we think about the growth mindset and the idea that it takes practice to get good at something. And we like to share with students that it takes practice for us and mistakes are part of learning. And we hope all educators buy into that. But then when you ask educators, where in your syllabus and your grading policies is the growth mindset, we've seen so many faculty just scratch their heads and say like, you're right this is a philosophy I believe in, but it's not built into what I actually do, because we have hard deadlines. We count everything a zero if it's not there. And so Viji and I have some ways that we've done it, and we're always trying to think how much more can we put into our grading and our policies that really account for that growth mindset. So for me, an example is I allow students to drop their lowest exam. And with first-year students in a STEM course, many of them don't do well on their first exam. And it helped me think about, oh, let me give them an earlier failure. Let me give them a hard quiz earlier on so it doesn't hurt them a lot. But allowing them to drop an exam gives them this sense that, okay, I didn't do well, but I don't have to leave the major. And honestly, students think that. They get one low grade and they think they're done with that entire discipline. So that's one way I've dealt with that growth mindset.
3: Yeah. And that point that Kelly made about leaving the major to some faculty, that might sound ridiculous. Like we've certainly been knocked down a few times and picked ourselves up, but there are some students for whom they've been told their whole lives they don't fit. And if you get that early piece of feedback that indeed, you don't fit, and that's the way they interpret it, it doesn't mean that that's what's actually happening. What's actually happening is they've made a mistake in terms of their preparation, or maybe they didn't have the right types of study strategies, whatever it is. But we want to convey in our courses that you can recover from that early mistake. By using the right approaches, let's sit together and talk about what you did do and what we might do better next time around. And so having this grading structure where you drop a grade in my course, I have a cumulative final. In statistics, it's easy to have a cumulative final. Everything sort of builds on one another in terms of content. And I say that if you do better on the final, it can replace one of the earlier exam grades. So again, it builds that opportunity for being able to understand the material at some point. It's okay if you don't get it by exam date one or exam date two we will get there. And it's not a race. It's not about getting there at a certain time. It might not even happen this semester. It might take several semesters of chipping away at a certain topic, but that you give them a little bit of grace in terms of the timeline with which they might understand that material. And then again, like, does it really have to be a zero if you don't turn something in versus a 60 or 70 or 80, right? The mathematical average of that is terrible. So let's think about ways in which we can assign grading such that a single late assignment doesn't harm you greatly or a single low grade doesn't harm you greatly and bake that into the grading scheme of our courses.
2: And on a bigger scale, when we say we look out into the conferences of our disciplines, or we ask where's the diversity in our own disciplines, it comes back to these little decisions. This is anti-racist teaching when you think about these things. By having really hard first exams, that's a barrier that excludes people. And if we really want diversity in our disciplines, these are the little decisions that we make that are really powerful in terms of the effect and impact they have on students.
3: Yeah, we've all heard that, look to your left, look to your right, some of you will not make it. And then we say as educators, well, that's terrible. Why would somebody say that? But then you look at our syllabus construction, and really it's just a different version of that kind of statement.
0: And I think another thing you advocate is keeping most of your assessments low stakes. So that way, any one thing they may not do well on, besides dropping the lowest grade from a set, just keeping pretty much everything low stakes could also take some of the pressure off and reduce some of that effect.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's another great strategy.
0: What are some of the things that faculty do in class that makes class discussions less inclusive? And what can we do to make these discussions more inclusive?
2: Now, this is a question near and dear to our heart because Fiji and I are often at meetings together and either quietly texting each other or giving each other a look. And we know each other well enough to give a look and know exactly what it means. And a lot of meetings we're in are just not inclusive. If you're not the person that's just going to raise your hand and say something potentially controversial in a room full of ranks and hierarchy, our students feel that way too, whether it's actually ranks and hierarchy. There are lots of reasons why a student doesn't feel comfortable speaking up. And so a great way to do this is to to take the volunteer aspect out of it in a large classroom and put them into smaller cohorts. And many students are very comfortable talking to each other in small groups, verifying their ideas, building their confidence that what they are thinking has merit is a great way to start building community and to have students start feeling comfortable. And once they've gotten that affirmation in a small group, more people are willing to represent what their group said. So like, for instance, I never call on an individual student, cold call and say, what do you think? I always give them a chance to talk first. And then I say, okay, group number 63 looks like your number's up what is your group talking about? Fill me in. And so I'm hearing a diversity of voices, but I'm also trying to make the environment a safe place where people can build their own communities as well as contribute to the larger community.
0: And people would feel more comfortable when they're representing the group discussion than presenting their own. So that takes a lot of the pressure off, I think.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, no one wants to be wrong, and especially in front of the professor and their peers, right, so they're simply reporting for the group and that's the group's discussion. And as skilled educators, we all know how to turn a wrong answer into a learning opportunity in a classroom, but it still doesn't take the sting away for that person who feels like they may not speak up again because of it. So anything we can do to make it feel comfortable to be incorrect because it's still a learning opportunity or to say, well, that's a common misperception. Let's break that down a little bit and talk about it some more. Those kinds of things really go a long way to building the confidence of a student I remember one student in particular who wrote me just such a kind note at the end of the semester talking about how this is a common refrain in my course. They had not been looking forward to taking a statistics class. Shockingly, there's not a lot of people who say that they are looking forward to it. But in this case, she wrote to say, beyond any sort of content lessons I provided, what I provided to her was the opportunity to understand that she was right a lot of times in her group discussions, even though her peers tried to convince her she was wrong. And she began to doubt herself, and she'd pull in her answer because the group had a different answer, and then she'd realize originally she was right. So she built confidence, but she also learned that she really knew what she was doing, and she didn't understand that about herself, and she had more conviction after she left that course to be more forthright about her opinions in other settings. So these are the kinds of things we can do when we add structure, we're giving people a chance to reflect on who they are as a learner and who they are as a person and how they can contribute in their groups and
2: in society. I'd also like to add that we don't have to have people speak up to be part of a community, that there are lots of other ways to contribute in writing and using anonymous polling systems. These are all such great tools and they're the ones I certainly would have gravitated to as a student had I ever been given the opportunity. I spent four years as a engaged, high-achieving student in college and never once raised my hand to participate. It just wasn't what I was going to do.
0: Yeah, and polling gives people the same instant feedback so they know whether they were right or wrong. But from the class's perspective, it feels anonymous that they're not putting themselves out there where they risk the embarrassment appearing to be wrong.
1: One of the things that I have certainly seen a lot of conversation about currently on Twitter. And I know that you've both engaged in these conversations about is how to community build at the beginning of a class, especially in a virtual environment where you have that really awkward online silence that nobody really knows what to do. with. (laughs) And you've offered some interesting ideas. Would you mind sharing some of those?
3: When we are used to teaching in a classroom space, like in the same building together, I hesitate to say in person because we're still in person in this environment. But when we're together in a classroom, there's a buzz that is at the beginning of the class time, right? So that people are chatting with their neighbors. It feels like a warm environment oftentimes when you walk into at least a classroom where the the conditions are right. You feel a warmth when you come in that you're going to be learning. And when you're online, it's really hard to simulate that kind of buzz because of the nature of the tool. So thinking about ways you can have that kind of chit chat is really helpful. So I use polling in this environment as well. Right. I can have a question posed on the screen and students can respond to that question either in the chat window or through Poll Everywhere. I like using Poll Everywhere because I use it anyway. The downside to using chat in some platforms is if you join late, you don't see the previous responses. So if you can use something where students can scroll through and see their peers' responses, that's a nice way to kind of get warmed up for the class session. It might be something about, you know, what they're grateful for today, or maybe they could tell you a little bit about something that they ate recently that they really enjoyed. But just getting some small talk in before having something in place that gives a little structure. I've heard people talk about playing music. Just any small ways you can to try to bring some sense of community in those moments before class start, I think is really helpful.
2: And I would agree. Vigi started teaching in the spring online with some synchronous sessions. I was doing asynchronous. So if she told me to do it, I did it and it works. It's a nice anonymous way to have that chit chat too without owning it in the chat box. I've used it selfishly this semester already to find out how students are doing, if there's something I could do better for them, just taking the pulse. So a bit of a survey question as well. My daughter is in high school. She just started high school. And of course, it's online high school. And I keep asking her, did you get into your session on time? And she goes, no. And I said, why? Why not? She goes, well, I want to be a little bit late. And I Why? I don't want to be the first one there. She's so afraid of like how awkward it is that she can see on the platform (laughs) there on how many people are there. And at some number, that's when she jumps in.
0: As long as everyone doesn't do that, then we'd have a bit of a coordination failure.
1: (laughs) I don't know. As a faculty member, I don't want to be the first one there in an awkward silence either. (laughs) But that's just the point. It doesn't have to
3: be awkward. Why not just design it so it's less awkward? We all know it. We all go into these things and we're like, oh, it's another one of those starts to the meeting, right? But let's just make it so that we have something that we respond to, that we see on the screen. Everybody can see it. It's also awkward, I think, when you walk into a meeting and they've started and they're talking about something, but you have no idea what they're talking about or how to jump into that conversation. So having a prompt on the screen is one way where everyone, even those who come late, can still see what the conversation is about.
1: I've had a couple of colleagues who are also using whiteboard features in video conferencing software to have like a doodle board where people can collaborate or doodle. We teach our classes, doodle on the board Mm -hmm. and collaborate as a way to silently do something together that seems to be pretty effective as well. Yeah, I love that idea. That's a great idea.
0: I'm going to do that next time. Thank you. In the chapter that you wrote for teaching statistics and quantitative methods in the 21st century, you mentioned using polling tools to provide challenging questions to students. Do you do that in a single stage process, or do you have students vote first and then discuss it in smaller groups or with pairs before voting again?
3: That's a great question. A lot of it has been through trial and error, understanding what was a hard question and then breaking it down to something that's a little bit simpler. So, if it's a multi step problem, I've learned to scaffold the problem through multiple polls and then get them to the right answer. It's very helpful in quantitative work because people do work at different pace. And so, this can level that playing field by getting everybody at the same stage of the problem through the scaffolded polls. But there are some polls that I know really work very well as a give me your thoughts first and then. Let's do it now where we talk to one another, we do a bit of peer instruction and then we repoll. And I love showing them the results from round one to round two, I call them rounds, because then I say to them, see, you don't actually need me here. But the truth is, they do. They need me to pose the question. They need me to get in there and tease out the problem that I know that they're going to have challenge with. But they can do the work of teaching each other the material and getting through the problem together and on the whole getting it right. So those are fun ones for me because it's also about building community and they love it. They know that like my goal for every poll is that 100% of them get it right. And so that's another way I convey that it's important to me that
0: all students learn the material. If we're teaching remotely, synchronously, what can we do besides meeting with them at the beginning of class and just chatting with them and maybe at the end of class? What else can we do to make that environment more inclusive?
2: Well, one of the things I love about this environment is everybody's name is up on the screen which helps me a lot as an instructor, but it helps them know each other too. So it can be community building and it's a great way for people who have names that are difficult to pronounce, to put a phonetic spelling, to ask people if they would like to add a pronoun there. I think these are advantages that we just haven't figured out quite as easily in the face-to-face classroom. I use note cards in my class for the same reason but I can't tell you how many times they either refuse to take them out or forget them. So it's never the 100% I get on a Zoom screen with names. But
3: one thing I've noticed people talk about often is the back channel. So having the chat going, and it seems to be universal that people are feeling already a little bit sad about when we lose chat. When we go back to the face-to-face or in the same room environment, that there's a lot of good discussion that happens in that back channel. And I know people do use back channels in classroom spaces, too. That's one aspect of this environment that's unique and helps bring more voices to the table.
2: I think another thing that is worth mentioning is... I would hope people are using their live sessions for doing those difficult things together and not talking at students because that could be better served with a video. I'm sure we all find ourselves explaining and talking at times. So I think one thing we could do is to help our students is to say, you don't need your camera on right now. Although I love to see you and it helps us build community, this could be a time when you could turn your camera off. I also have invited my students to use virtual backgrounds because when I'm teaching, I'm in my bedroom and I think it's odd to see your professor's bedroom. So I use one, but I think it's a nice talking point too if students feel more comfortable. If they are going to share their camera, then maybe they don't want to share their surroundings. So just not just assuming students all know that, to be very explicit and say to students, here are all the different ways that you can access this course. You don't have to turn your camera on, but
1: here are the ways that I think I would love to see you engage. You've both written a bit about the hidden agenda or the hidden curriculum of using these kinds of tools and technologies, and you have a student guide for using Zoom. And I took all of that to heart, too, and made sure that I made some videos about the different kinds of tools we were using this semester and actually built in the whole first week of just like, this is how we do the things. Mm -hmm. And like, let's try them. (laughs) And then there were some ways that I was planning on using some tools and we've actually already pivoted because it didn't quite work the way that I had hoped. And now we have something that's working a little bit better for everyone. So I think that's also an important piece to point out. Can you point out some of the features maybe of the guide that you created for students?
3: Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is what we've been talking about, adding structure to these tools, right? So just because it's in front of them doesn't mean that they know how to use it. We all saw a car before we knew how to drive it doesn't mean we knew how to drive it. And everybody thinks it's very intuitive, but again, what do you do when you start a meeting? Do you turn your camera on or off? Do you mute on or off? What does it look like to say goodbye in a Zoom meeting? There are certain things like that, that I, at least when, as Kelly mentioned, I switched to a synchronously meeting because we were doing all these problem solving sessions. I wanted to keep that as what our synchronous meetings were. And I was anticipating that some students would have questions like that. This actually started with somebody tweeting about having a dress code for showing up to a Zoom session. And I just thought, are you kidding? There's a pandemic going on and you're thinking about what the student is going to wear to come to class when they've been moved out of their dorm, sent home barely have internet. There were so many things where I thought, I just need to let them know that that is not on my mind. I don't care. I'm just grateful that you're alive and you're continuing to learn. So those are examples of things that I wanted to think through. And and Kelly helped me think through like, what kind of questions will come up? And we brainstormed ways that we could just communicate it in ways that students, hopefully they find them to be just succinct answers to questions that they might be wondering and not sure how
2: to ask or if it's appropriate to ask and what to wear was one of those things. And that's a good example of the shared brain we have sometimes, because I called Vigi one night and I said, you know, we should write something up about being more inclusive with Zoom. And she goes, I was just writing a guide for my students. And so we just quickly put it together and had a lot of the same ideas around that. Coming back to the idea of the hidden curriculum, I think. That same idea where a lot of us are new to using Zoom and these different tools that we remember how hard it was to get on and what the rules of it were and they're constantly changing, the settings and all of that. So it might seem obvious to make a guide for your students about how to use Zoom, but what are the other aspects in our teaching that we take for granted? We're such experts and we're so comfortable with the college classroom. I think we always have to be asking ourselves, what other guides should we be writing that seem so obvious to us? We forget that we've been here a long time. And we don't want students to feel like there's this culture they don't know about.
0: I actually put a note in my syllabus telling students that while they're invited to use their cameras, they're not required to. And if they'd prefer, they could put up a picture of themselves or of their pet or of anything that they'd like to use as a symbol for that day, because it probably would look nicer to see images of people than those just little black boxes on the screen. And they responded pretty positively to that. I did send out a note to our faculty before classes started this semester, suggesting that faculty should invite students to use their cameras if they felt comfortable, but should not require it. And the response was not quite as positive. A lot of faculty seem to believe that they need to see their students to make sure that they're there, to make sure that they're engaged. And to look into their eyes to measure whether they're learning, because (laughs) apparently their eyes provide secret signals to some faculty about the amount of learning that's taking place. It generated a lot of emails.
3: They have some tools that I don't even know about. I didn't know there was such a tool that I could
0: use. It does suggest perhaps the need for more inclusivity training for faculty.
1: I had one last question about Zoom environments and things, and that's about microaggressions. We know that we need to shut them down when they occur, but I think that faculty, if they're not used to being in a virtual environment, whether an asynchronous online chat or discussion board or in a Zoom session, figuring out ways of handling situations just seems different. Do you have any advice for how to handle those kinds of situations in those different types of environments?
2: Well, I think you hit on it already. One thing that's common in all of these environments is don't ignore them, right? If it's asynchronous, then Like say something was put on a discussion board, I personally would feel like, whew, whew, I have a minute to think about this without everybody staring at me, right? And so each case is going to be a little bit different in terms of how you deal with it. You also can't pull aside the people after class who may have been impacted by that. So we have to remember whatever we do to deal with it should also include really reaching out and being mindful of who those students are that might have been impacted. I would say live online is probably not that different from in a classroom because we have to do something at that moment. And that could be saying like, let's take a pause. Let's stop. My instincts in teaching are always to turn it into a teachable moment and to turn it back on them and say like, this is what just happened. Can we all take a moment to maybe reflect, to put into writing the impact this could have on a student? You know, something where I personally just need a moment to think. And I'm not going to be embarrassed about that. And I think that my students will come up with a lot of things I wouldn't have come up with in a very eloquent way of dealing with it.
3: Yeah. And I think the only thing I'd add to that is it feels scarier in this online environment because oftentimes we are recording sessions. People can snapshot, even though we might set good intentions with our students about what they can and can't share with an outside community we can't control it entirely. And so it can feel even scarier, I think, to feel like there's some level of posterity around that moment or your reaction to that moment. So I think if anything, I mean, we've had a lot of discussions in the world about different kinds of discrimination and all aspects of life that are harder for some students. Not ignoring it is definitely the first step. I think there's even the step before that, which is, I might not recognize it, so how can I support you as learners and as peers? If you see something, I'd like to know what it is, even if I am the one who's doing it. I want to know because I want to do better. So really being open to that kind of criticism from students or just acknowledging that you're a human being like all other human beings, and you'll make mistakes, inviting them to help you become a better person by suggesting that this is going to happen. It's inevitable that something like this will happen, but we should be models of how to deal with that situation and be productive in our conversations about it and to move forward on it, right? We don't want to shame anybody for doing something that might not have been their intent, but the impact is no less to the people who have experienced that microaggression. So really thinking through and planning for it happening and talking about what you'd like to do as a community of learners. But yeah, as Kelly mentioned, if it's asynchronous, you've got a moment. You can gather yourself. You could talk to your peers and say, hey, this happened. What do you think is the best approach? But if it's not asynchronous, I think it's fine to just say, hey, let's hang on a second. I need a moment to just think about what happened here and how we might respond to it. And it might be, we might need to come back to this at the next class session and give yourself that time to think through it. But I think even the students who may have felt slighted by it will appreciate that you hit pause for a second and you're willing to work through it and that you trust them to make the right decisions moving forward to learn from it.
2: And I think going on what vijay said about maybe a little bit of prevention, Some practical ways you can invite that feedback in an anonymous way is to use a Google form that is always open. You can set it up so that you get an email if there's something there, and students can report on anything relative to the class, but especially microaggressions that you may have performed without knowing, or classmates, if they're doing group work, you certainly can't monitor everything. You're not in all of those spaces. And then coming all the way back to setting up group contracts. and respect and civility in whatever kind of mode and classroom you have that semester. Hopefully, you get to a place where you're preventing some of these things, but also recognizing that they will happen.
0: You both have a book coming out from West Virginia University Press. Could you tell us a little bit about what the book will be about and when it will be available?
2: Well, the book is definitely about inclusive teaching and spoiler alert, it is definitely about structure. (laughs) And we really walk through course design, facilitation, but we're also really thinking about all aspects of a course. So whether it be office hours or communicating with students or bringing in undergraduate learning assistance, whatever parts of a course that enhance learning, we really wanna think about structure in all of those areas.
3: Yeah. And one of the challenges we faced is we've both read a lot about good teaching, right? So a lot of these practices are good teaching, but we wanted to apply the lens of how it promotes inclusive teaching through this book so that ideally the reader would then be able to take some of these themes and see them and apply them in other areas that we didn't explicitly talk about. So just a way to view the world as you're teaching and thinking about how to add more structure and the idea that if we leave things to chance that some students will be left
0: behind and that's really not acceptable.
2: As far as the timeline, we're not sure. Our first draft is in and that's all we can say. Excellent,
0: so that's a fair amount of progress because you just signed it not too long ago if I remember seeing on Twitter.
2: Yeah, it was fun to write together. It- we definitely get in a groove with writing some sentences together. And then sometimes it was just you write this, I'll write this, and we'll swap. But it's certainly a way of knowing someone pretty deeply when you write a lot together. Yeah. And we often talk about the benefits of diversity, right? And so doing these projects of writing, but also when we do our
3: workshops, we speak a lot. And when we come up with ideas about what we might do, it's always great to be able to bounce ideas off of each other and to say, but what if we tried this, and we did this, and we did this, and Well, you get that second person really reflecting on some of the ideas, and it's really helpful to be able to do that. And
1: you get a better product,
3: quite frankly, no matter what it is. It's better when more people can critique it and give you feedback about it.
1: And we're all going to benefit from that collaboration because we're all looking forward to your book. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? So uh, we teased you, you already (laughs) said about your books, and (laughs) I have to come up with something else. (laughs) (laughs) You mean, what's my next beverage after I finish this LaCroix? It could be. It could be whatever. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to go take a nap, whatever it is.
3: Well, literally, what's next is I'm going to get out of my seat because I've been in it for a long time. And I'm probably going to take a walk with my son who's home. This is his home day he's learning from home today. And, and then I'm sure I'll sit back down at the computer and answer some emails. And I feel like these days, it's one day at a time. And eventually, I'll get to the point where I can look a few months ahead. But for right now, it's one day at a time.
2: For me, I guess I'll take a much broader view and an optimistic point of view that I think what's next is once we get through this crisis that teaching and the way we educate our students I think is going to come out better for what we've been through because I see people doing the best they can in this environment, but really paying attention to how learning works. And I think our students will be winners in the long run in that however we come out of this.
0: Thank you. It's wonderful talking to you. Thank you for all the work you've been doing and supporting instructors all over the world for quite a while now. We've appreciated it, and we share a lot of the things that you've done with our faculty.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It was really wonderful hearing from all of you. Thank, you. thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page.
1: You can find show notes, transcripts and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.